Hello everyone and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine. We're thrilled to be hosted online at healthydebate.ca. My name is Amol Verma, I'm a resident in internal medicine at the University of Toronto, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Fahad Razak. He is a man of many titles, including but not limited to staff general internist at St. Michael's Hospital and also a Bell Fellow in the Population and Development Center at Harvard. Hey, Fahad, how are you doing? Hey, Amal, good to be with you. It's great to have you as always. So Fahad and I are talking about two articles today. First, about atrial fibrillation and stroke. And second, about naloxigol for opioid-induced constipation. And of course, as always, we will wrap up with our Good Stuff segment, bringing you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Fahad, why don't you kick us off and talk to me about atrial fibrillation and stroke. Great. Thanks, Amal. So I'm going to talk about a new study published in the New England Journal of Medicine by a group of Canadian researchers and led by David Gladstone at Sunnybrook Hospital at U of T. It's called the EMBRACE trial, and it showed that among patients with recent stroke or TIA with unknown cause, extended monitoring for atrial fibrillation beyond the standard 24 hours results in a substantial increase in detection of atrial fibrillation. And this has major implications for secondary stroke prevention. So to provide a bit of background, stroke due to atrial fibrillation is frequently devastating. So in fact, up to 80% of patients die or become disabled from this cause of stroke. And currently about a sixth of strokes is attributed to atrial fibrillation. But despite extensive workout, they still don't find a cause of about 25% of strokes. And we call these strokes cryptogenic strokes, so strokes of unknown cause. Now, in the absence of a diagnosis of atrial fibrillation, standard treatment for secondary prevention of a stroke is an antiplatelet drug, something like aspirin or clopidogrel. However, if they do detect atrial fibrillation in a stroke patient, then instead of using antiplatelet therapy, we use anticoagulants such as warfarin or some of the new oral anticoagulants. And these have substantial improvement in treatment compared to an antiplatelet, probably up to a 60% further risk reduction for stroke. So building on those results, Gladstone and colleagues looked at 570 patients age 55 or older who had a recent stroke or TIA anytime in the last six months. Now, these patients had no identifiable cause for their stroke despite standard assessment by a stroke neurologist. And this included an ECG, 24-hour Holter monitoring, brain and vascular imaging, and an echo. Now, the control group in this study had a repeat 24-hour Holter, and the intervention group had a 30-day event-triggered loop recorder to detect episodes of atrial fibrillation that were not obvious to the patient and not clinically evident. And these had to last for more than 30 seconds to be detected. So what they found is that atrial fibrillation episodes were detected in about 16% of patients in the intervention group. These are the patients who were wearing the loop recorders versus just 3% in the control group. That's an absolute difference of 13%. In other words, if you screened eight patients using these loop recorders, you'd pick up one new episode of atrial fibrillation. And by 90 days post-randomization, 18% of patients in the intervention group versus 11% of patients in the control group had been started on anticoagulation therapy because of the detection of atrial fibrillation. So that's a number needed to screen of 13 patients in order to start one on anticoagulation. So this study uh, in patients with recent stroke or TIA demonstrates a substantial increase in the detection of atrial fibrillation through the use of prolonged monitoring. 
A parallel trial that was also published in this issue of the New England Journal called the Crystal AF, AF trial also found that prolonged monitoring for atrial fibrillation had substantial benefit. He used a different mechanism, an implantable cardiac monitor. Both of these studies together address a substantial gap in current guidelines with regard to the duration of monitoring for atrial fibrillation and should add to the way that we currently work up strokes. So what do you think? I have to say I've always wondered about the utility of checking for paroxysmal atrial fibrillation for just 24 hours, the conventional approach to investigation. And this study provides pretty compelling evidence to me that 24 hours is not enough in the case where the cause of stroke remains unclear. So to, to me, this seems like a potentially practice-changing article. Yeah, I, I think it really is. So you have these two large trials, which both show a substantial increase in the detection of atrial fibrillation. And you're right, that 24-hour period, or sometimes a 48-hour period, that's not really guided by concrete evidence. And so this study really tells you that if you add a loop recorder, if you, if you monitor someone for three to four weeks, you're going to have a substantial improvement in detecting atrial fibrillation. And we know based on that large body of evidence for the superiority of anticoagulants versus antiplatelets, that detecting atrial fibrillation in someone with stroke is critical. Yeah, I have to say this new diagnosis of atrial fibrillation after 30 days of testing, to, in my mind, it raises the question of whether this is a new clinical entity. So is this atrial fibrillation, which happens, I guess, rarely enough that you miss it in 24 hours of screening, is it the same as the kind of atrial fibrillation that you would pick up with just the 24 hours of screening? And if so, does the intervention, does anticoagulation have the same clinical effect? So I think you raise an important point, and, and that's that this atrial fibrillation that's detected by prolonged monitoring, it's called, one way to describe it would be subclinical atrial fibrillation. In other words, atrial fibrillation that's not detected because of patients complaining of palpitations or detected as part of a workup around another illness like a stroke. We don't know if this kind of atrial fibrillation would respond to anticoagulation the same way as atrial fibrillation that's, that's not subclinical. But on the other hand, logically, there's no, there's no reason to assume that it wouldn't. And there is some cohort evidence to suggest that this kind of atrial fibrillation, which is the kind that's picked up after that initial period of 24 or 48 hours, does benefit from treatment with anticoagulation. But it is definitely an area that future trials will need to address. Yeah, I guess you raised the point, which I wonder, which is about the therapeutic, the effect of therapeutic intervention in this group. But also, I wonder why this study was designed as a randomized control trial. If you're trying to figure out what percentage of patients after a stroke have this subclinical atrial fibrillation, why not just do a cohort study where on all of the patients you measure both the 24 hours and the 30 day and see how much more you pick up at 30 days compared to the 24 hours? Yeah, I think the problem with that, and, and there have been cohort studies that have tried to pick up that effect. I think the problem is, is that in the absence of a control group, you don't know actually how effective this strategy is. In other words, a lot of patients who have AFib eventually declare themselves. So they, they come in with palpitations, and that may happen a week later, a month later, a year later, but they do declare themselves. And I think what this study tells us is that after a stroke, so this is within six months of a stroke, Placing someone on a monitor actually will pick up a lot of patients who otherwise wouldn't have been detected. Yeah, sure. Part of me wonders whether this trial is also geared towards giving us a longer term answer about that 
intervention piece, will they'll be able to report some outcomes around the difference in anticoagulation in these two populations and how that affects clinical outcomes? Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's right. There will be better evidence for the eventual impact, for the overall impact of this once they follow these patients. Um, there's also a couple of other important points, and it, they were raised by Human Kamal in an accompanying editorial. The first is that even with this extensive monitoring, still one-third of patients after that 30-day period had no identifiable cause for stroke. So there really is a role for research to try and figure out why these patients are having stroke, and that's still one-third of patients, so a very large group. And the second major point is the point that I think we've discussed back and forth, which is that we really don't know how beneficial anticoagulating these patients are. And that has to be a question that's at least left open. I think a lot of doctors will start to monitor for this and start treating it. But really, and I think the long history of clinical trials have shown us, we don't know concretely if anticoagulation is beneficial until that study is done. Yeah, absolutely. I guess the only drawback then of doing this kind of testing in all of our patients, if presumably it, sh it turns out that anticoagulating them is beneficial, is the costs and the logistical hassle of doing 30-day monitoring. So can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, so this study did not uh, address cost-effectiveness, but a rough number from, from uh, studies about one to two decades ago suggests that a week of monitoring with one of these loop recorders, including collection time, analysis, et cetera, costs about $150. So if you think of the enormous cost of a stroke, that's probably very cost-effective, but those studies have to be done. Okay, thanks so much, Vod. So why don't you tell me what the major takeaway points are from this study? Okay, so the major takeaway points are that we now have two large trials, the EMBRACE trial and the CRYSTAL AF trial, which both demonstrate a substantial improvement in detection of subclinical AFib with prolonged monitoring post-stroke or TIA. These findings have immediate clinical implication given the benefit of anticoagulation versus antiplatelet in secondary stroke prevention. So I would say in my practice and for most physicians, most patients with cryptogenic stroke or TIA should undergo at least three weeks of monitoring for atrial fibrillation through low-cost methods such as external loop recorders. Perfect. Thank you so much. Let's move on. I want to talk about an article about naloxagol for opioid-induced constipation. In Patients with Non-Cancer Pain, it was published by William Che and colleagues in the New England Journal of Medicine. So this study found that naloxagol, an opioid receptor blocker, can improve opioid-induced constipation without reducing the analgesic effects of the opioid medication. Canada has the second highest level of prescription opioid use per capita in the world, and approximately 20% of Canadians over the age of 15 reported using opioids in the last 12 months. That's one in five. I have to say I found that number staggering. In the United States, more than 240 million opioid prescriptions are dispensed every year, and the majority are for non-cancer pain, such as back pain and other musculoskeletal ailments. I want to just pause for a minute and say that the evidence for opioid use in non-cancer pain is actually not very strong. And of course, there are real concerns about opioid overuse in our populations. It's been called an epidemic. There's a great article about this on the healthydebate.ca website, actually. It's a bit of an aside to the current conversation, but I think it's an important point to mention. Having said that, let's move on to talk about opioids and the fact that they are very widely used, and the most common side effect is constipation. So this study reported two identical phase three clinical trials testing the drug naloxagol for opioid-induced constipation. 
So there were approximately 600 patients in each study, and they were 18 to 84 years old. The patients were taking opioids for non-cancer pain for at least four weeks, and they were on a stable dose. And the dose had to be at least 30 milligrams of morphine per day, and it ranged between 30 and 1,000 milligrams of morphine. The patients needed to have symptoms of opioid-induced constipation, which had a fairly complex case definition, but the main point is that it had less than three spontaneous bowel movements per week. Those patients were randomized to three groups. One group received 25 milligrams of naloxagol per day. The next group received 12.5 milligrams of naloxagol daily, and then the final group was a placebo control. They received the treatment for 12 weeks, and the primary outcome was the response rate during the 12-week treatment period. So response was defined as more than three bowel movements per week without the use of rescue laxatives, and an increase of one bowel movement per week compared to the patient's baseline in at least nine out of the 12 weeks and three out of the four last weeks. Sort of complicated, but basically that they are having more bowel movements per week. The findings were that in the 25 milligram group, the response rate was about 45% versus 30% in the first study, and 40% versus 30% in the second study when compared to placebo control. So there was an overall improvement of about 10 to 15%, which gave us a number needed to treat of about 7 to 10 patients. So what do you think, Fahad? So this is a pretty cool study. The first thing that struck me is they're using an opioid receptor uh, target as well. So how does this work? How is this different than the way that opioids themselves work? Yeah, okay. So without uh, going too travesty on you and getting into all of the (laughs) molecular biology. We miss him. (laughs) Yeah, we do miss Travis. Basically, opioids act on a variety of receptors throughout the body. Their pain effects are mediated centrally in the brain. And Their peripheral effects, including constipation, are mediated on receptors uh, in various sites of the body. And so constipation is actually mediated through the mu receptors, uh, which are in the gut nervous system. And so binding opioids to those mu receptors changes the kinds of contractions that happen in the gut. It inhibits water and electrolyte secretion. It inhibits gastric emptying. It increases the tone in the pyloric sphincter and the anal sphincter, and it delays transit through the intestine. So opioids have a variety of effects on the intestine that cause constipation. So this drug, naloxagol, is actually an antagonist at those receptors. So it prevents opioids from binding to those receptors, and as a result is a fairly specific treatment for the opioid-induced constipation. The thing that's interesting about this drug, so it's not the first of this class of drugs. There are two other agents. One was called methylnaltrexone, uh, which is limited because it was an intravenous-only drug. And the other one was called alvimopan, and that one had a lot of cardiac... There were concerns around cardiovascular toxicity, and it has a fairly narrow use as approved by the FDA. So this is new because it's oral. And the thing that's interesting about it is it's pegylated. So there's a peg group... Uh, polyethylene glycol group attached to the opioid antagonist, and that prevents it from crossing the blood-brain barrier. And so it only acts peripherally and doesn't interfere with the analgesic properties of opioids. Wow, that's pretty cool. So despite your promise of not being Travisy, you got all Travisy. I know, sorry, I tried really hard. <laughs> so this this sounds like a very specifically designed drug. Uh, what What's the cost? I don't know. 
it has yet to be sort of publicized. There's no price point yet, but I presume it will not be cheap. Yeah, I, I think we can safely presume that. I mean, the other thing that, and and not knowing more about how they did the study, uh, plus they used a placebo control. So I would say that most patients on opioids who, for this duration and this intensity, we wouldn't leave just on a placebo. Was there active treatment for constipation even in the control group? Yeah, I think that this is probably the biggest criticism of this study. Um, so before we go on to talk about the laxative point of view, I'll take a minute to talk about the design of this study and industry involvement therein. So this drug is made by AstraZeneca. Um, The trial was designed by AstraZeneca. The data was analyzed by a firm hired by AstraZeneca. The paper was written by a firm hired by AstraZeneca. And there were also some academic authors who agreed with the overall approach, but really the final say was from industry. So the fact that it was measured against a placebo control and not against current standard of care, I think probably reflects that. It's interesting that that is the case. I mean, I would say just from an ethical point of view, we provide best treatment prior to adding a, an intervention, in this case, this new drug. And to me, it's surprising that you would leave people on just placebo. Yeah. So here's what they did with the laxative issue. Throughout the treatment period, and there was also a two-week confirmation period that these patients actually had opioid-induced constipation, so there was a two-week run-in period. Throughout that whole period, laxatives and other bowel treatment regimens were not allowed. However, if a bowel movement had not occurred within 72 hours, they were allowed to use a rescue medication, which was only bisacodyl. Uh, and it was there was a maximum number of doses they could use, and then they were allowed to have a one-time use of an enema. So there was rescue laxatives. So not great. Catch-up care, not preventative care. That's right. Is that fair? I mean, my takeaway from this is that they actually haven't done a comparison against what we would do clinically in practice. Uh, I totally agree with you. They haven't at all. And so there have been other studies looking at other laxatives in opioid-induced constipation. Uh, Unfortunately, when I was reading through them, they're reported in different ways, like number of bowel movements had. So you can't really categorize the response rate in the same way that uh, this study did. So it was hard to compare them directly. But certainly other studies of drugs like lactulose or polyethylene glycol have proven to be more effective than placebo for opioid-induced constipation. So we have other therapies that are more effective than placebo, and this trial did not test the new drug against those therapies. So, Mal, based on the potential conflicts of interest uh, uh, that you've highlighted and the fact that there wasn't really a great control, uh, there wasn't really great treatment in the control group, how do you interpret these results and how are you going to apply them to your patients? Yeah, I think the major takeaway points from this study are that, first, this represents a really neat designer drug that theoretically should cleanly target the mechanism of opioid-induced constipation. Secondly, I think a lot of questions remain about how much more effective this drug is than other drugs. And I think that if this drug was likely to be cheap, that probably wouldn't be an issue. You could add it to your armamentarium of laxatives to to treat opioid-induced constipation, and it might even end up being first line because that's what it's designed for. However, something tells me that this is not going to be a cheap drug. And as a result, I think its use in clinical practice remains a little bit questionable. All right, thanks for the conversation, Fahad. Why don't we move on to our Good Stuff segment? So each week we bring you short and sweet recommendations from the world of medicine. So Fahad, what is good in your world this week? 
So I want to talk about uh, an obituary, so not so good, but an obituary for uh, a scientist and physician that I admire greatly, Dr. Arnold Relman. He died at the age of 91 uh, just recently. He was the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, actually for a pretty long period of time, from 1977 to 1991. And between him and his wife, Marsha Engel, they were on the editorial board of the New England Journal for about a quarter century. And this couple, I think, is really inspiring. They were an important voice to question the role of privatization in medicine. They wrote editorials against the role of lobbying and advertising by pharmaceutical companies. And way back in 1980, uh, Dr. Relman wrote an editorial in the New England Journal uh, echoing a phrase from Dwight Eisenhower. He cautioned against the emerging medical industrial complex. This was way back in 1980, and I think something that was pretty prophetic looking at how medicine and its relationship to industry has evolved over the last three and a half decades. Thanks, Fahad. It's a really poignant recommendation. Oh, I should just mention them all, the, the uh, obituary specifically is from the New York Times. But on our website, we're going to link uh, to that 1980 editorial and to another profile from the New York Times from about two years ago about uh, Dr. Roman and Marsha Engel. Okay. Thanks very much, Fahad. So my good stuff is a little bit more forward-looking, actually. Maybe it's a good compliment. Uh, so I'm talking about the Longitude Prize announced by the British government. So the, the Longitude Prize was actually originally awarded in the 18th century to scientists trying to figure out how to measure a ship's longitude. So they could easily map latitude based on where the sun was, but longitude was a trickier problem. So the prize was actually revived in the last couple of years by the UK government, and they created a short list of six challenges behind which they would try to galvanize scientific movement. And then they ultimately conducted a public vote where the people could pick the most important of those six challenges. And on June 25th of 2014, they announced that the prize of 10 million British pounds would be awarded for the subject of antibiotics. And specifically, they are asking scientists to find, quote, cost-effective, accurate, rapid, and easy-to-use tests for bacterial infections that will allow health professionals worldwide to administer the right antibiotics at the right time, end quote. So I think it's a really interesting concept, first of all, stimulating research with a very targeted question and a laudable goal that hopefully will help address one of the great public health challenges of our time, which is antibiotic-resistant organisms. Thanks, Amal. That was, that was a really interesting article. Thanks, Fahad. A pleasure to speak with you as always, and hopefully we can do this again soon. Great to be with you. Take care.